There was a point when I thought we were never going to finish. A point when I thought I was going to go nuts. I have never worked so hard at making something difficult look so simple. Those are words from cinematographer Gordon Willis on his work on Woody Allen's 1983 film, Zelig. Seeing Faces in Movies is a podcast where each month I focus on the works of a different director or cinematographer. And each week I invite a guest on to discuss the film and the artist's filmography. I'm your host, Felicia Maroney, and today we're talking about Zelig. A quick synopsis of the film is a documentary about a man who can look and act like whoever he's around and meets various famous people. The film stars Woody Allen as Leonard Zelig, Mia Farrow as Dr. Eudora Nesbitt Flesher, and Patrick Horgan as a narrator. It's written by Woody Allen, cinematography by Gordon Willis, directed by Woody Allen, edited by Susan E. Morris, and music by Dick Hyman. Today, my guest is Jose Hodan, and first episode that we did together was The Gleaners and I, which is part of the Agnes Varda series, which I highly recommend you go listen to, you know, learn more about his background in film because he's got a very, very interesting background. Actually, I got a lot of feedback from people on oh. that and being like, that's such a cool trajectory of career in film. So I highly yeah. recommend people go listen to that episode. But Jose, thank you so much for coming back on the show. For Gordon oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Forced me to watch some good movies. Thank you so right? much. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's my pleasure. So because you've been on the show, you've already given all your background as a second time guest. If you could recommend a couple of films that you've watched recently that you think I or the listen and the listener should watch, what would they be? Yeah, the first one's controversial and controversial yeah. only because the director's controversial. But I think mm. it was so powerful. I haven't you know, you watch movies and sometimes you're kind of like at arm's length watching it. You're like, oh, that was a good shot. That was cool. And other ones you totally forget. You're just like into it. Um, for me, Vortex by Gaspar Noé was that second one. It was so, you know, it's not like a violent movie like his other movies. There's no extreme anything. And maybe mm -hmm. it's because I'm getting older, but watching it was, I, I was, I was I had white knuckling almost. Like if I was holding the DVD, you know, like I, I don't know what I, it was just overwhelming because it was just merciless, I guess is the best way to yeah. describe it. You know, and, and I think there was, you know, everybody has like, you know, family situations where, uh, maybe there's a health thing or, you know, and, you, and then you imagine you fast forward just a little bit like, I wonder what would happen if, you know, near the end of their lives. And then, you know, you sort of see this here and it's really hard to watch. I don't know if, you know, if you're experiencing it live, whether or not it would be a fun movie to watch, but it is. Yeah. It's super mature. It's kind of like, a you know, how Quentin Tarantino, they talk about Jackie Brown mm -hmm. and they, you know, they, they say how that's uh, like a mature film. I think yeah. this would be Gaspar Noé's like mature film, the one that yeah. you know it doesn't have it has a whole lot of trickery, but it's really supporting the story. I think it's wild. Yeah. I think people should see it. I just don't think it's it's not like a yeah. heartwarming movie. <laughs> no, I haven't seen it yet. Um, I've I've heard a lot about it, and I feel like it's probably the one that I could handle in a sense that it would be a lot to watch, but won't upset that me due to the way he's creating that story i only said that because his other stuff i just cannot it's just not for me i'm like this is yeah. actually too abrasive and i don't know that how much he actually respects his audience at all that's a conversation for another <laughs> time but i don't know that he does you're talking about irreversible i know i know you're talking yeah. about irreversible and it's divisive uh but yeah. even his early ones and i know that tarkovsky did this but like he straight up kills a horse in one of his first short films and you see it uh -huh. and it was so shocking. And I don't know if it, I mean, I understand it, that it's a horse meat factory. <laughs> so it isn't. Yeah. You know, it's not an accident. It's not. I don't think it's CGI or anything, but it is, mm. it is meant to be provocative. And his early ones were for sure provocative and irreversible. Everybody will always talk about that. I think the other ones have been more formal, more formally interesting. But this one, yeah. you know, I don't know if you would say this one has a soul again, because if you don't like Gaspar Noé, like this isn't going to do it yeah. for you. I don't think it's going to turn <laughs> you into a fan. But um, it really is interesting to watch. And I, I, I you know, next, you know, how about this? When you do, if you ever do a, a month of Gaspar Noé, like I'll be one of your guests. Oh yeah. Uh, 
this may never happen but if it does if you run out of filmmakers <laughs> sometimes i do try and push myself so i know a few people who do like his work and i'm sure a lot of people listening to that recommendation will jump on watching it if they haven't seen vortex yet so that's that's a good recommendation uh, my other one i messed up i thought you just uh mentioned two movies that that I'd seen recently that I have opinions on, not that they that I recommend, but I really wanted no, to like okay. Napoleon. Napoleon by Ridley Scott was one I really, really wanted to like. I knew it was going to be in French and I knew it was going to be the same sort of thing with uh, Oliver Stone's Alexander. That's like the accents are all over the place. But if mm-hmm. you think about back in the day, all the accents would have been all over the place anyway. Mm-hmm. There's no explaining away some of the air, like some of the choices they made in Napoleon. And even Joaquin, like his performance is so like he makes choices and he commits to them. And like, this is what's oh, yeah. happening. <laughs> right. But it's not like Agnes Varda's Napoleon would look any better. You know, like it looks <laughs> amazing uh it just feels grand and i as i understand it the longer four hour version is better because okay my my experience of this napoleon like again i really wanted to like it so i was trying to like excuse mm-hmm. it but really all it is it's like a checklist of things that happens in his life like we just sort of okay. go from one thing to the next thing and that's where i think it falls apart and it could be helped by a longer movie but then at the same time who wants to sit through that again you know if you know you've been burned once but um, that's fair. I, I haven't seen it yet either. I've been hearing mixed things about it. <laughs> Ridley Scott has an interesting career, especially his later stuff where he's just really pumping them out. But like he's not pumping out like, you know, simple movies either. They're all like very great. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how he has it in. I'm like, wow. Yeah. Yeah, I have to respect him. You do. Yeah. Yeah. He's kind of like an old time jazz person or like a blues guitar player that's still still doing it. You know, um, I, I think about all those direct like uh Quentin. I was gonna say Kanye. Like Quentin, you know, when when he says, you know, I'll only do the eight or whatever, I'll only do six. like he just sort of limits himself. It, you know, Ridley Scott is not about that life. You know, he's no. I'm making movies. And and you're right, they're not small. You know how Francis Ford Coppola went small for a while? Because he yep. was just like, you know, I don't want to have to get people to agree to pay for the budgets and all that, right? Yeah. And uh, Ridley Scott just goes big. And I think he he has hits and misses, but man, like, I'd rather him make movies than not make movies, I think. Exactly. Who knows, like, some of these movies, 10 or 20 years from now, with age, you come back and reappraise them. I find that happens with a lot of movies. Or you're just like, oh, I don't like this at all anymore. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, that's the worst. Yeah. Isn't that the worst when you when it you really love the movie and now it's like dumb when you watch like I'm scared to rewatch yeah. Fight Club, which was amazing to me, but I don't want to feel like I'm an incel now. Right. I'm know? so glad that you said that because it's been a hot minute, like over 10 years <laughs> since I've seen it. And like we used to watch it a lot in high school, but yeah. I don't think I've seen it since then. And I'm like, I don't know if I would like this. <laughs> <laughs> I know. We'll I know. see. But then one day. Yeah. Not to digress. Please let's let's get yeah. in on this, Gordon Willis. We'll guy. get it. Yeah. We're <laughs> we're talking about Delig today, 1983, which is film directed by Woody Allen, but we're talking about it through the lens of Gordon Willis. Do you recall the first time you watched Zelig? I do. I do. At my When I used to work at Warner Brothers, they used to have, I was there for the transition from VHS to DVD. Uh, mm-hmm. And so they were getting rid of all these old VHSs and they were just giving, like, you could buy them as an employee. And I, I bought so many of those, you know, like people, yeah. nobody wanted all these sort of borderline artsy things. And Zelig was one of them. And at the time, none, not all his movies were easy to find. And this one in particular was harder to find. And I think what grabbed me the most was, I'm pretty sure the cover was the different font faces. Like yeah. they had their po- that, that sort of iconic Zelig poster where it's like Zelig written over and over, but in yeah. different fonts, which is kind of a super clever way to encapsulate the movie on the poster. And yeah, when I watched it, I think I dug it right away because, you yeah. know, it wasn't so long from when I had seen Forrest Gump. I mean, like, you know, relatively speaking. And so I'm like, oh, it's that thing they tried. To- they did in Forrest Gump. They did. These guys did it. Yes. Before, yeah. Know? Uh, it's a weird movie it is weird movie that's i also well i have the dvd one and it also still has the the different fonts on there which i love that's the cover art yeah i would have watched it probably late teens early 20s as i was going through woody allen's filmography so it was just one that was just the next on the list to watch to watch sorry and i don't think i knew anything about it was not expecting any of that (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah. this opens up as a documentary i was like oh okay i didn't realize he made a documentary i was like oh this is it is but it's not i was like this is insane i cannot believe that i don't know that people talk about this movie 
that much. I mean, especially now, but like if we're going back maybe 10, 15 years, I don't remember hearing too much about it. No. When people did talk about Woody Allen, he had so many sort of big hits that this one wouldn't have been. I mean, he's got so many. And if it's, yeah, even if it's he hard, stopped, yeah. he, you know, but but this one in particular is kind of a throwback to his first one, the Take the Money and Run, where it didn't really mm -hmm. work, the sort of mockumentary thing. And this one, I think he, not he himself necessarily, but the whole team really pulled it off. Yeah. You know, they, they, they built this in a way that even now it doesn't feel aged. Like you couldn't, there was only a few shots where I'm like, wow, this is fake. But uh, yeah. most of the other ones didn't feel that way, right? Mm -mm. And it's cool. Which I'm sure we'll obviously cover that as well. But before we actually get into the film itself, just wanted to kind of get your opinion on Gordon Willis. You know, when did you start noticing his work? And, you know, what really kind of drew you to his style of photography? You know, in preparing for this, I watched a bunch of Gordon Willis stuff. And mm -hmm. I realized it was such a shock that I think he is the definition of the look of a film that I love. I didn't know that at mm -hmm. the time, like until you look at his work as a whole that it was actually him like it, there are other people who are who carry a style through their the way they shoot films and i'm gonna sound like ken from barbie but like the godfather is you know the movies that really opened me up to sort of this <laughs> this sort of grandeur uh this sort of it's like you know the the iconic 70s movies yeah and this one really just spoke to me in so many different ways the godfather 2 which they don't mention in barbie is my favorite and so many of these images that stayed with me for a long long time are Gordon Willis's and the yeah. more you learn about it you're like oh he did this on purpose like this wasn't an accident he super planned all this stuff and so I have a lot to thank him for because not even counting some of the ones I discovered in my research but just the basic iconic ones right like the Godfathers and let's just leave it at or you know I guess Manhattan any hall and those ones like mm -hmm. that this guy created a lot of the stuff that shaped my my viewing habits of what I think is cool when I first started getting into cinema which I found yeah. shocking you know um, to be able to encapsulate this to be able to identify this person yeah I think that happens when you're watching a film on the first time unless you're specifically looking at you know who shot this if that's your interest you're just looking at it, this is the director's work it's not usually until a rewatch where you realize oh the the cinematographer and this why does this feel familiar oh because he shot all these other movies i just like the reason why i wanted to do gordon willis is because i love 70s american cinema and he's like the definition as you said yeah. of that era it just when you think of the 70s there's no way even if you're not consciously thinking of gordon willis the, the imagery that you're picturing is his imagery so oh yeah it, and it's interesting because they were talking about an 80s film of his but this is the one that he got you know accolades for all the Can you believe that that was yeah. a huge shock to me like if you remove all of his work from just like the canon You'd be left with nothing. Like, not that the 70s didn't have other people, but like, uh, he's so impactful in, in yeah. the stuff that he did that it would be really weird to see those, like, you know, the reels of like the highlights of a decade yeah. and not see his movies in it. You couldn't have picked a better person. And and he's, um, I usually hate on the 80s just in general, even though I was like raised by 80s movies. Like, those are the first mm -hmm. movies I experienced, you know, like Star Wars and, and well, not Star Wars, The Empire and, and these and Indiana Jones and all the stuff that like a kid would watch in the 80s. I usually hate on it because it's kind of like this. It's, it wasn't my style. Like when I got into mm -hmm. like cinema, cinema, it was, you know, it was the French New Wave. Mm -hmm. It was yeah. some silent <laughs> stuff. It was like super, you know, pretentious -y type stuff. But like even some of the classic studio things. And then obviously the 70s and then the 90s. But not never yeah. do I say, oh, the 80s. Like I, I yeah. usually could skip it. But I've learned my lesson. There's a few movies that, <laughs> that came out in the 80s that are actually amazing, you know. I feel like I remember you saying that from the first episode that the 80s were oh. not your jam. And I, I was like, yeah, that's me in like the 2000s. Yeah, yeah. I almost stopped counting in the 2000s. Well, yeah, no, like, uh, I think 2004 had some bangers, but um, it yeah, Eternal Sunshine. Oh, yeah. Okay. See, sometimes you have like one little gem here and there. <laughs> that's how I felt about the 80s. Totally. Yeah. See, so I totally understand you. But if you're ready, we can get oh. into Zelig. So before, I know I keep saying before we get into it, I'm not trying to push the discussion on the, the film, but we have to mention this film is directed by Woody Allen and it's it stars Woody Allen. It's got his voice all over this. And I know that he is a 
I don't know. Controversial seems like such a minimal word for his status right now, but I'm going to use it controversial figure because of his personal life and just wanting to address that because I know that can be upsetting for people, but noting that we are talking about a film that's not created by just one person and there's a whole team of people, including the person that we're chatting about today, which is Gordon Willis. I'm assuming anyone who's listening to this has seen the film. There's no actual spoilers if you haven't, so happy to listen to this and be inspired and go watch the film. Highly recommend you watch this film, despite whatever, you know, feelings you have for the director. But this film is mixing real footage along with footage they're shooting and they're inserting characters, namely Zelig, played by Alan into footage like newsreel footages in some old older films of the 90s and 20s i think we touched upon this before we actually started but the first time i watched this i remember feeling a little confused i was like is this like actual footage or did they film it and they're pretending like it's actual footage how did they manage to get it to look this way and insert them into that just so how was your like thoughts when you first saw how they were able to put him into this I would think I was prepared conceptually because I had what you just described with one of my favorite movies, but I saw it in in, in university, which was uh, Land uh, Without Bread or okay. this from it's like a, it's a movie by Luis Buñuel and it was in 1933 mm, okay. and it's this it's a total mockumentary and narrative driven narrator driven and uh, I had exactly what you were saying like is this I don't even know what I'm looking at. Is this supposed to be yeah. funny? Because I feel like this is supposed to be funny, but it's kind of mean if I laugh, If especially if those are real people. The, the ethics in 1933 when Louis Buñuel was doing that stuff were just totally out the window. Like he, mm-hmm. I think he killed like a bunch of goats. There's actually an animated film about the making of that movie, which oh, yeah. is, is also wild. Like it's like it's an alternate universe where they make animated films about Louis Buñuel. And um, oh, wow. that experience prepared me for Zelig because it's just sort of a studio version of that uh, with the added uh, sort of postmodern collaging that mm-hmm. you, you discussed. So there's no, there's no, <laughs> there are no famous people in that Luis Buñuel movie, but yeah. it's the, the fact of like the tone is throwing me off. Like, is this real? Is this a joke? Is this, is this real? You know, like you just sort of keep going back every shot and it's like a meta viewing experience, even if it's your first time, I think. Mm-hmm. And I think Zelig kind of would have the same experience today if, if somebody were to watch it, especially if they don't know who the direct, like the director's work, like that would be, an interesting experiment to have somebody watch it without knowing anything else, you know, and just see what their opinion is. I think there's so much time that's passed and I don't know. I mean, I, I'm not one to shit on, you know, Gen Z. Like I think they're great. I I don't know how many of them are actively seeking out Woody Allen films. So if one of them were to come across just thinking this (laughs) is a documentary not knowing who that is at all. <laughs> I'd be interested to see their reaction on this because we're watching yeah. it knowing this is Woody Allen, right? So Yeah, yeah. We have that It's separation. almost the most Woody Allen. Like, this yeah. movie is almost designed to just have him do his, you know, not stand-up routine, but his, like, one-liners that really have no place in any other narrative. But in this one, he'll just be able. To, he was able to sneak in so much, so much. But I, I don't know. I don't think any Gen Zs will will stumble upon it. I think it'll be more of a Gen Alpha type thing. Like, like the next generation Maybe. will be in a position to just like, what's this weird? Thing? I don't know how they would find it, frankly. But yeah. if they did, you know, they'd be so far removed from you know all the oh, events yeah. that, beyond beyond. Yeah. One of the ways they were able to achieve the look it was to they use a lot of actual lenses and camera and sound equipment from the 20s so they did that but then they he went in and like really studied the the same lighting techniques that they would have done in those specific scenes that they're taking so that's different there's quite a bit of different lighting that has to go on throughout this film because there's so many different footages that you're, they're using but when they got the negatives Gordon Willis brought them in the shower and stomped oh, on yeah. them <laughs> Which I thought was so interesting because I was like, how do you get that? Because this is an age where, you know, digital wasn't a thing. So they weren't shooting this and changing it digitally. So they had to use the actual film to do it. So that's interesting. But I remember just thinking, how is he able to match the lighting? Like, I know this man's talented, but it's just it's it doesn't seem like there should be in other hands. You would see that distinct, like, you know, when we cut to Zelig 
oh, the yeah. lighting looks different. Like it's not even like they're in the same room. How did you feel about them being able to match the lighting and just make it seem so seamless throughout? You know, uh, the lighting, it wasn't just the lighting, it was the softness of mm-hmm. the image and the the grain, you know, of the stock they used and and a lot of the sort of under cranking, you know, like people were kind of running a little bit when they shouldn't have yeah. been. And it was just a bunch <laughs> of drop frames in places. It just like all the tricks, they used every trick to, to to sort of hide it along with using, you know, the actual equipment, which I think the sound, I think, does the most to really bring it home. I think it ties it all together for a movie that doesn't require continuity, like in the same way that a regular movie does. Mm-hmm. You do kind of need to match the sort of archival there, there, there was a scene where there was like the Zegfield girls were like snare, uh, uh, serenading yeah. the, the main characters of this movie. So it's like on the, they, you know, the camera turns to the right and it's all these, you know, uh, like uh, newsreel people. And mm-hmm. then you cut to the left and it's our actors. And it, and, and it doesn't look any different. And, and yeah. that's, you know, that's really masterful. Like now, I guess, too, people wouldn't understand just how difficult it would have been to age film because yeah. it would just be a filter or whatever now, like your phone does it. But as I understand it, it was more of um, they did use the old equipment, but the real magic was in the lab. It was like a nightmare for the lab that they used. Yes. And so they that lab actually got people out of retirement to work on this on this film. And I was like, OK, well, maybe they're the ones with the tricks, right? Like they would have known what be. not to yeah. do. And they're like, just you know go put it in water call back you know if it doesn't look good or something but what a fascinating undertaking i think you know to be so authentic to the time period you know just because that's that's Mm -hmm. how the gag worked otherwise it wouldn't work without all that extra stuff that they added to it no it wouldn't i and like originally the film was like 45 minutes long because it's all (laughs) like they could do but then he was like i gotta stretch set so that it's a feature length film so that's where you get a lot of like the voiceover stuff um and more of you know mia farrow's character doing her stuff because that doesn't require being inserted into other footage as much but it's also just like the the power of you know alan and willis and to be able to get people out of retirement to do this because some no-name yeah. director they'd be like that seems like too much you're doing too much right now like we <laughs> yeah. need to dial it back <laughs> this is a huge undertaking and like i think the film was it was filmed like two years before it was released and there was yeah. two other films that woody allen shot and, yeah and so even with willis was released before <laughs> Zelig was willis was saying that it was a pain to do and took way more out of me than i anticipated but he doesn't regret you know that final product and how could you right there's not many people who can say that they created this it was such a successful result like there's it just you get the impression you know sometimes you watch movies and you're like the end result definitely is not what they started off thinking it was going to be and then you might learn about movies like annie hall famously was horrible until Mm -hmm. the editing like they just couldn't make it work and then it was it was sort of fixed in the editing uh with this one you obviously couldn't do that like the whole thing it's almost like they set out to conquer you know to climb this hill mm-hmm. and they did it you know so in that way it's it's really interesting in the in the sort of discog and not discog filmography but but mm-hmm. didn't you find it so random that this was his first nod at the yeah. academy awards because i i was like what did he even do here like you almost have to go like was that 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 could have been the editor that was a lot of the you know the makeup there's the special effects people like, was mm-hmm. it actually him? And then, you know, after watching a bunch of interviews, I'm like, no, he was totally involved. So, sure, let's give him the, yeah. the nod. But, like, wasn't that weird that this is the first one that people are like, you know what? Let's give him a, a nomination. <laughs> it really is because as much as I love the look of this film, it is, like you said, there's so many other factors in here that that make it special. Or as opposed to other films that he shot, like I've covered Clute and all the president's men those are all great films but you're remembering the visuals yeah. of this film like those films sure. don't work as well with without his you know vision behind it whereas you know not to diminish his work on this i think that <laughs> he's very much you know a stamp on this but it's, i think it is like you said it's weird that this 
is the first, but then with the Academy, we all know, know. That they just I never know. get it right. Even like the last cinematographer I covered was Robbie Mueller, and he was never nominated for a single movie. It's almost like a, I'm sure I don't know if it feels this way while you're trying to get you know work, but it must be like a badge of honor. You know, like the amount of people who haven't gotten an Oscar that yeah. only got the one at the end. You know, the sort of lifetime achievement. Yeah. You know that it's probably a better this you know filmography than if he did all the best pictures. You know of yep. of the Oscars. I think he seems to me to be very involved and there are some shots mm-hmm. where you're like oh this is super gordon willis like do you remember when mia farrow's character is struggling with the way the treatment is going she sort of be smoking in her study yeah. um it in those shots were just just super beautiful like straight out of clue like you know like uh, one single source light in the back that's sort of ed- like there's like a rim light happening on the edge of their her hair and like the smoke is lit in like this most you know the most 1940s noir type thing and mm-hmm. uh it looks so so beautiful and, and then i'm like oh that's where he is he's here yeah. you know <laughs> I agree. I think most of my favorite shots in this film are with the Mia Farrow character because it kind of gives you a release or a relief, you know, from the overload of Zelig's doing this and that. And it is funny, but sometimes it's like, okay, I just need to, you know, be given a second because there's a lot of different transformations. So she's like, you know, the most calming presence in the film. And he does, yeah, she gets a lot of great shots. What did you think of the this, you know, the sort of Ken Burns, because I, I imagine this is another role that Willis would have played significant, uh, significantly in is when he, you know, the camera will just take a still image and then like zoom yeah. in and sort of, it'll be two still images sort of like, but there's multiple shots because he's like zooming into one of the characters in the photo and then it cuts to another, mm-hmm. you know, and and what, what did you think of that kind of staging, blocking, yeah. you know, that he did? I noticed it a lot on this watch. I don't know that I remembered that happening. But I noticed it a lot. And I was like, this is so, I just found it kind of funny. I liked it. And I only say funny because like so many people have done it since. Mm. But they don't do it anymore. Like, I think it stopped (laughs) in like the 90s. You get like a lot of those cheesy zoom-ins. I don't think it's cheesy here. But it definitely translated in later on in the 80s and the 90s as being very cheesy. I think it works here because, I don't even know. I, I just... I just think it adds another layer of realism to the documentary that's happening because it is a documentary mm-hmm. within the film. And it makes it seem, it kind of sometimes makes you forget that this is actually not a documentary. <laughs> yeah. Like those scenes always, I'm like, oh yeah. Yeah. And like, is it a parody where you like, is this a parody of Ken Burns? Because I guess Ken Burns was around there but i didn't get that vibe like i was like wondering is he like are they making some sort of reference to the documentary sort of like tropes but it was so early in ken Burns' career that he didn't become you know he wasn't yeah. the, the apple iPhoto effect until way later you know i got lajete vibes actually from those do mm-hmm. you do you see that yeah. like the sort of narrator driven pictures yeah i could definitely see that and i think that's what with the narration that happens because i know that originally that wasn't supposed to play such a big part so they added that on. Uh, I can see him being inspired by La Jete. Like, I don't yeah. think, as you said, it was a parody of anyone. I think it's probably just inspired by and him being like, okay, this is like silly, but there has to be serious <laughs> moments. Yeah. I, I do think that there was um, a parody aspect to the Talking Head interviews, which is kind of because it was only a couple of years after Reds. And Reds has famously mm, those yeah. like old people talking about back in the day. So yeah. it was kind of like that. You'll have like Susan Zontag and like Saul Bellow and everybody talking in this movie. And that felt a that lot like, oh, you're making a reference. Yeah. Yeah. And they're being funny, actually. Because they're so serious. Like it doesn't seem <laughs> yeah. like, you know, they are acting. It just seems like, yeah, they're talking about their time as Zelig. And I was like, well, those are pretty good performances from them. <laughs> yeah. I like, I even love the, like, I think the the coloring and the lighting in those scenes, because that's when we flash to color. It's just great. Then I got the flash of like Gordon Willis again. You're like, okay, now we're getting some more Willis in here. But yeah, it's just an interesting film to talk about in terms of cinematography because there's so much of that mixing and of the other footage and figuring out what it is that he was able to do and like how much time did he spend shooting Mm -hmm. those scenes because the, you know, inserting of stuff a lot of this is done i had to have done in in the editing as you said but i just think it is an important film to 
to talk about, especially because this is the only one of his that I've covered that's in black and white for this series. So oh, I think that's also important to see the duality of because I, I always think of color and with Gordon Willis. Yeah. But then he's shot some really big films in black and white like Manhattan like yeah. this. You know, he hated color. He called it um a nuisance to have to deal with color, which is so, I'm sure it so is. Just, yeah, because he's like, you can't just come in dressed however you want. You know, he he was like, it was black and white is totally different. And he um you can tell that he loved it. He just loves this this control mm-hmm. that he has in black and white. While this one was crazy in other ways, at least it was, you know, he was able to make it, you know, the, the costumes weren't necessarily part of the problem in, yeah, in, in exactly. this case to make it mad. He's a funny guy. I like how grumpy he is. Same. <laughs> but like, I think he's, he's merited it. But like, uh, you did say something interesting about, you know, the black and white, um, because the black and white here is different from the black and white in Manhattan because the black and white here is mirroring 20s and 30s, which is not the same as Manhattan's the 70s. So yeah. that's different. It's so they're completely different black and white films, but it's still oh, it's so that much. color grading. And it's just like, it's just the attention to detail that really makes it work because I think that's where he's so important as it comes to the film because I think if they didn't get that the coloring the lighting down you would have been so taken up you just really wouldn't take it seriously yeah you'd be like this is it's supposed to be stupid and you'd be like yeah I don't know that we'd be talking about it (laughs) yeah because it's more than just the scratches it isn't just the the old look it's the way that the lighting it's like you know the the way the light the way the shadows um, mm-hmm. are are visible in a way that they would have been visible if it was newsreel footage or they wouldn't have had yeah. like there's a scene where they bring out Zelig from a hallway and they go up the stairs in the courtroom and he's the like it's all dark like it's just you can't even see anything you know it's him because of his silhouette which is again mm-hmm. a super Gordon Willis thing and then there's only one light they enter this pool of light and then they leave to go up the stairs and that's it and then there's no way so many directors of photography would have let that happen right that's yeah. it just it's you know actually gordon willis has this thing where like he, he sort of dismisses hollywood i think he's more of a new york filmmaker and mm-hmm. he's like in hollywood they should walk around with a shirt that just says fear because they're just cowards <laughs> like you know they don't they don't like committing to you know like so he gets funny. into arguments with directors about you know directors saying okay what are my options it's like you don't have any options you have to get an idea and you commit to it you know and then yeah. that's the kind of guy you get to do this kind of stuff because he'll be like no they wouldn't have had that light back then they would have you know done it this way and we can still find something inciting in it but yeah it's it's that's the kind of guy you hire for this i think and i think i don't know that he got along with most of his directors (laughs) that he worked with because i was reading an article on cinephilia and beyond which i'll include in the sources because they have some really great stuff about gordon willis's career that i've been kind of relying on for the series and one of the interviews where he just going they're talking about all the ones that he's worked with a lot like Woody Allen, Pakula, and you know Coppola, and he's just like ripping on all of them. Yeah, <laughs> like Allen was just such a pain to work with, and he talked about Hal Ashby, and he's like, he's a great guy, but he just hide the whole time, and that annoyed me. And he's like, yeah, but I'm still here. We're gonna do our job. You know, I don't have to like you, and I like that. That's amazing. That's very working man's DOP. <laughs> totally. Yeah, he talked about how he was always afraid of not having a job. And, you know, the person interviewing him was like, that's wild. You're Gordon Willis. And it it was more about him, you know, just being working, not working class. Like he, his family was in the business. um, So he, he knew about the entertainment business, but to him, it was Mm -hmm. kind of an industry kind of thing. So he, you know, I think he worked a lot in commercials where I think he's, he, he mentioned he learned a lot of the technique, you know, not Mm -hmm. the story stuff, but the technique stuff he really sort of honed in commercials. But uh, when he talks about the directors, he, he, he was saying how, uh, he was kind of dissing Coppola because he's yeah. like, I, I work in, he says something like, I have it in my notes somewhere where he's like, I work in specific, like, don't give me the emotion stuff. I don't want like how you're yeah. feeling about this. Tell me, like, we got to talk about what this scene is about, you know, where, yeah. how many cuts we need. And uh, I, and I found that kind of refreshing, you know, because I think of Coppola the way you would think of Coppola as a, this massive person, you know, in history, like in this historical moment right mm-hmm. uh to him it was just his co-worker and he was like yeah. no. you know. and there's another thing he said he says like i rarely let a director get off track so you're not shooting seven movies you're shooting the one that we committed to at the beginning you know like yeah. that kind of thing it's like i love that that Sometimes he's you need so into someone it gonna put you in your place and be yeah. like, listen i need to finish this job so i can get another job after this i have a family <laughs> to feed and then they kept hiring him yeah 
I mean, eventually it became one of those sort of like, you know, Greg Tolan things. Like he just puts the, not the Oscar on the table, but he's like, here are the movies I made. If you want yeah. me, I'll be over here. You know, like, <laughs> would you say though, that there is a, when you think of all the Alan movies that you've seen, that there's a moment when you mm-hmm. know that, that Gordon Willis entered the chat? Like, can you tell in his filmography or like, oh, they look different now or they're they're more sophisticated? Or would you say you, the Alan style maintained its way all the way through? No, it definitely didn't. And as someone who's seen literally every Woody Allen film, Annie Hall is the first one they shot together. But I think it might have been, I always just think of interiors specifically. Oh, yeah. Yeah. as being the one that was so different and it is it's noted as being that very different because it's that very european-esque look for it uh look of it it's very bergman and i remember thinking for a long time because i was watching a lot of bergman at the same time when i would have first watched that thinking it was sven who oh yeah had shot it and not realizing it was gordon willis and i was like oh okay to so see you know they were obviously inspired by a lot of sven's work but i you could see that Gordon was very capable. And I think that's the shift because then you get stuff like Zelig, then you get Stardust Memories, which is also such a beautiful black and white film yeah. with him. I think Annie Hall, when you go back and look at it, you're like, okay, this is very much Gordon Willis. But I don't know that it would have been different then. Annie Hall to me is like this unlit movie. The, I don't think of any shots as like particularly beautiful or designed. And then you look mm. at it and you're like, and, and he explains, he explains, there's this shot that I, I liked from Annie Hall when the one guy's trying to convince him to call him that his name should be Mac, you know, <laughs> like, and then yeah. like, Tony Roberts is then they're walking. And you yeah. don't know who's talking. It's like this, this movie, this unmoving frame. And then mm-hmm. you notice, oh, in the back, there's two guys talking and eventually they walk up, walk up to the camera. And that's, a, you know, that's that's not a fancy lighting thing, but that's a 100 percent a cinematographer move. Right. Like that. It's like we don't yeah. need to move the camera. This is what the shot needs. It's actually kind of funny, you know. And so I, I'm glad that you brought that up because that's something I've noticed a lot. Not so much in this film, but in the other films I've covered where he likes to sometimes just be like the camera doesn't need to be moving right now. Allow the mm-hmm. actors to move in and out of frame as we need to see them. And that's a choice. Yeah. So I love that. But I do think, you know, I, I didn't see it in Annie Hall. I guess, suppose I saw it in Manhattan, but like the, or was interiors before Manhattan? Yeah, they were right. Be- oh, yeah, so yeah. Annie so it would have been interiors. interiors yeah. Yeah. So interiors would have been the big sort of glow mm-hmm. up on the, on the looks. And, and yeah. now that you, if you see all the Gordon Willis stuff side by side, you're, it's very clear that it's him. Right. Like the mm-hmm. super I did a bit of fashion photography of, like many years ago. And I loved the sort of like really dark stuff, you know, that that to me was, you know, it, 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 it's it's so much it's almost like you're suggesting what's there more than showing yeah. what's there. And I think that's what he does so well. Like, so I, I'm sure I was just influenced by him. But the 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 way that that if you think about traditional Hollywood and what the studio system required movies to be, which were like star vehicles. They need to look mm-hmm. this way. They have a brand. They have to see the eyes. You know how uh, some of the old classic movie actresses would carry, would work with only uh, one cinematographer yeah. like their whole life because it's like they knew how to light them. I don't know if it was, yeah. I guess it was Marlene Dietrich or, or somebody. And, you know, that his style of shooting would not work for that era of filmmaking. No. You, what do you mean I can't see her face? You know, like, why does she not look beautiful at all times? Right. Um, yeah. Because that wasn't the purpose. Right? His purpose mm-hmm. was for the story. And their purpose was I'm trying to sell this, you know, this legend, this uh, this larger than life figure as this most beautiful woman on earth. You know, no, that's. That's very valid. I don't know that he would have. I think he was around at the time that he was meant to be. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I miss films looking. Not that we were alive, you know, at that time in the early 70s. But uh, I miss, you know, just seeing stuff like that. That's why I always gravitate towards stuff from the 70s, especially American films. Before, because I do want to talk about parts of the story that we We've talked about the story, but just how it translates to audiences today watching it. But before that, are there any of the parts of the cinematography that we haven't covered that you want to chat about? Uh, the cinematography of the film, I think, was really opinionated, right? It just strikes me like what we've been saying, that it was meant to be authentic. He does these things, too, where you... I think it was in those zoom-ins that we were talking about. Oh, yeah, those those still images really still communicate all the information 
between mm-hmm. the Mia Farrow character and the Zelda character when they're doing the treatments and sort of the psychological analysis. They're the shots that you get in Zelig, even though they're just photos, are still done in such a way that you get all the information that you would have gotten anyway if it was an actual film. And so to be able to pull that off just really shows you where, you know, uh, and it, like somebody like a Gordon Willis could could really make that happen. It wasn't just an, a random picture they took. It was still as framed and as, and as blocked as it would be if it was a moving camera. And it's just kind of what we were saying, that he doesn't necessarily need all the lights. He might need no lights, right? He might need just the window or he might need uh you know an unmoving camera or in this case a photo but in all those cases he adjusted it so it communicated the information that we needed to get i think that's where i don't know it's pretty easy to call him a master but like i think that's where you you get that master vibe you know in those kinds of details i agree i hadn't even thought about it about you know the still photography of him not treating it like it's a still but i definitely see that that's so interesting I mean, what else can we say? Like, the man is will be forever, hopefully forever, remembered for his work. Yeah, I hope I, we don't forget yeah. him. He retired, too. Yeah, he did. I guess one of the last things about Zelik is, if we're talking about story-wise, there's a lot going on in, in this film, as we've said. But one of the points, that one of the things is that there's because this character is transforming into different people, we're getting a lot of this actor in you know blackface brown face (laughs) and whatever different color face and (laughs) it's a lot and it's a lot to watch i i don't know what it would have been like in the 80s i assume a lot of people would have been like um pushing it but it calls for it in the story can we excuse it how do you feel about it i know that there's no way audiences today would accept this and immediately be banned (laughs) you know yeah he'd be he'd be Almost where he is now, even if uh, yeah. he said that. <laughs> yeah. But it's really hard not to laugh at it. Like, it's it's tough. You know, like, it just seems so ridiculous that if this movie came out now, like, you just can, you can't imagine what, you know, or you can't imagine. Like, it would just be so obviously destroyed in every way, right? That he not only, I think he, he's not just blackface. Like, he turns into an Asian guy, in, a Native American yeah. person. And to, like, like and it's just, like, uh. And I know he's Jewish, but there's all the Jewish like stereotypes too. Like he just gets everywhere, and uh, it works for the movie. Uh, in as much as like, how different would it be? I guess if that wasn't there, and I think it would sort of like the whole movie resolves itself by him doing one final transformation where the skills of uh, the person he's copying save the day when he's sort of taking them upon himself. So that extreme, like that's the conceit of the movie. So if he mm-hmm. does that, then somewhere along the way, he's taking the faces too and the body shapes. And it's, you know, I don't think, I don't know that anybody in the 80s would have noticed, frankly. I think it was, yeah. I don't know. I think it was excused at the time for sure, is my is my guess. But yeah, I, that's my guess too. Yeah, I, I might be giving audiences of the 80s a little bit too much credit, but <laughs> it, it's, it's, just so it's difficult not to have those things in the movie because it just at that point it's just like well just don't make it maybe well no exactly right and and and, and that reasoning i just gave like oh because it works for the movie then i guess it sort of leaves room for that yeah. is just like the minstrel shows like yeah i just basically that could still be used and and those are were awful then you know like it, i just don't know i don't know how to come to terms with that and it's unfortunate because that more than anything, that one's the one that you're like, oh, that one's just going to like immediately a problem. Like there's no ha ha. And it, and it happens. Did you notice it happens sort of a number of times? And you're like, I get it. I get it. He's yes. transforming faces. Like, why do we? Oh, here we go again. Who are we offending now? You know? Yeah. It was like he just touched every base. He's like, I'm not going to leave anyone unoffended. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. And this movie has Hitler in it. And like, that's not the yeah. offensive part. You know what I mean? That that's, you know, that's one of the funny parts. I don't know that it's good or bad. Yeah. Uh, watching these movies. Like, I don't know how I feel about it. It's kind of the whole, all these characters that have, that when we first in- encountered them, we didn't know anything about their personal lives or we maybe weren't as sophisticated in like, what's appropriate but the more you learn those things it's just so hard to watch these these works of art because unlike a painting where you can just sort of look away this is like an it's like a 
multiple images that you know then there's a story and then there's that whole thing where you identify with somebody in the movie maybe it's the main character or maybe it's the mm-hmm. secondary but either way you're like it's so much more interactive than if you're watching you know if you're just looking at a painting that that upsets you you just kind of look away not that that yeah. doesn't translate the proper painting will do that for you but films is such a you know and it's because you're in a theater like originally you're like hearing other people laugh when the blackface comes on. So you're thinking, oh, this is funny. You know, so that's also problematic. I may just have convinced myself to sort of put this one away and never look at it again, but. Yeah, it was a different watch for me too, with time. Yeah, I think mirroring everything you just said is exactly how I felt with it too. It's still a great achievement, but yeah. That's the thing though, right? Like Gordon Willis and like i don't know what his politics or his beliefs are like who knows yeah. what all these other act like all the people who worked on this the people who came out of retirement you know like like we you know i'm appreciating their work mm-hmm. um but it's hard to ignore the fact that this you know this is all under woody allen's sort of umbrella and and so yep. it's you know it goes all together but w- yeah. what do you think about this what's your stance i mean this is kind of have you done many have you felt this way about any other films that you've done in the series so far no not yet and it's interesting both of us talking about it because neither of us are white people and yeah right right so it's interesting viewing it from that and it's like i've seen this film quite a few times but i think it just as as life goes on you you grow with films you grow apart from films it definitely was like a huge you know cringe <laughs> watching a lot yeah. of those scenes and you kind of just hoping can this end you know how many more times are there and not that it didn't affect me the first few times i would have watched it but it definitely did this time where i was like it happens maybe one too many times where you're like okay i do get it yeah. let's move on because that's not even the most interesting stuff about the film um so it's tricky it's tricky getting I do think it's a film that people should watch because I think even something like those older, a lot of older films are racist, problematic, oh, yeah. but they're important to watch because that's part of history and how you grow from things. So I'd recommend people watching it for that, but just noting, like I wouldn't let anyone go in blind, right? I feel yeah, like yeah, yeah. there's going to be some stuff that's going to be offensive. So just prep yourself for that. So I think that's how I view it. I think so much of film history is that. Like now that yeah. I, you know, because our kid is, our eldest is 14 and he you know we he's like got this amazing luck of having like a super cinephile household and so he gets to yeah. watch all the good movies but we we make sure we tell him like we're not going to just show you anything we're going to show it to you at the right time it's like a dj dropping the right song at the right time because if you watch some movies and you're too young like i may have seen some movies too young i didn't get it and the next time you're like oh my god this is amazing right you have to like sort yeah. of match up sync it up and i think there's so many movies now where i have to be like hey okay so this is going to be super misogynist and we don't believe in that like yeah. like how many hitchcock movies do you have to like if you actually had to you have to, like here's a disclaimer he doesn't yeah. actually like this leading actress very much you know or whatever uh and it's it's a bummer because like i never had this disclaimer experience right like i would just watch a movie and i'm like cool interesting yeah. whatever and then you grow and now I feel like even with To Kill a Mockingbird, I had to be like, all right, there will be language in this book that you are going to find objectionable. And here's why it was yeah. used. And da, 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 you know, like, and mm-hmm. we can have a conversation about it. But it isn't as easy as just like, let's just throw this on the TV or let's just watch this or just read this book together without acknowledging yeah. that this is super not part of our lives. I think it's good to give a bit of disclaimer without censoring the stuff you know i know there's that whole conversation of films getting scenes cut out and it's like but why like you can give the disclaimer at the top and leave the film as it is because that scene is important for this you know you're maybe not supposed to like this character and you taking it out is diminishing how you're supposed to feel about it so yeah can't really edit those things out of this movie either because it's important to know that hey that's something that people could get away with back then which is not even that long ago it is yeah it's 40 years but it's still not that that long ago so yeah yeah. oh my god is it 40 oh yeah it is 40 years oh wow yeah yeah and they thought it was funny like for sure this was thrown in as the joke like it's not even meant to be like it's not like bamboozled or something where it's using it as sort of an explain Mm. like to explain what's going on like no it's not that there's no statement (laughs) it's just this is funny and, you know, I'm going to be racist to all these people because it's funny. Like, is there any more that you would want me to, you know, like, and then there's yeah. the whole comedy, like, does comedy 
play to the same rules that other culture does. And um, this is not for this podcast, probably, but that conversation continues for this yeah. because comedies are supposed to be, you know, comedies make you laugh for like, if you if you have a, a laughing reaction, you feel complicit in what you just laughed at, even though it could have been yeah. they totally maneuvered you into that joke or whatever. But you feel like, oh, no, that's I'm I'm to shame a little bit because I laughed a bit at that. Right. And so and so and, and I think so. So particular, like so, um, you know, uh, designed as a film, it, it is really the filmmakers that are guiding you towards this laugh. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, and, and and so it's it is interesting to show this to people because it's kind of a manipulation thing. It's kind of a yeah, this is what people used to think. Normal was totally different before. And like, how can I explain it to you? Well, this was supposed to be funny. Like, let's enjoy it now and see if you can enjoy it at all, right? And and you you can see how different you are now, and you know for the better because that's like it's insane to think that that was funny. But yeah, 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 I don't know. I don't think censorship's the right way. I just think that you definitely need so many disclaimers now that some movies are probably not worth the disclaimer. You know that you have yeah. to give. I don't know. Bummer for Gordon Willis fans. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, but still, as you've been saying, uh, great work on the film, but. That was Zelig. I still have a couple more questions for you, which is the the last segment of the show. And it will relate now to Gordon Willis's work and then the film itself. But same two questions I asked you last time. So if we're talking about Gordon Willis's body of work and someone's getting into cinematography, they hear about Gordon Willis, they haven't seen, let's just say they haven't seen any film he's directed or uh worked on that's including like a huge film like godfather they haven't seen anything where would you recommend they start to get that gordon willis feel and what's the reasoning behind that recommendation i think it would be the godfathers i think they're really Mm -hmm. accessible and i think they play well you don't need to know about the politics that were going on around the parallax view times you don't need to know about uh, you don't have to get into the whole Woody Allen thing. You can skip that. Like you can the the Godfather one, and even more so the Godfather two, uh, because it jumps in back and forth. Mm-hmm. It's just kind of a lot of the things we talked about. And even though it's got this sort of yellow tint throughout the whole movie, he's yeah. explained how in the sort of older scenes, period scenes of yeah. the Godfather two, when Robert De Niro is a kid, and uh, they're, they're, the way it was shot was softer. Like it looks mm-hmm. older. It still has a sort of same yellow tint that the whole movie does, but. Uh, when you get to the 70s part or the sorry I guess it's the 40s part then the more modern parts it's like sharper the way they shot it and there's so many super dark scenes that are just like paintings but then there are really bright scenes that are just like paintings and this whole thing about like every frames of painting like I think the Godfather too which is I know is very Ken Barbie for me to say but the 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 amount of variety of shots that he gets into the Godfather 2 are fantastic and pretty easy to see that that's amazing and then once you learn that it was a chemical process like what he was looking at on set looked nothing and was not he was not able to tell what it was going to look like like he was able to calculate what it was going to look like but he wasn't ever seeing it until after when the when the dailies came right like that level of control over how some of these shots were underexposed. And yeah. like, once you get into all that, you can still use a Godfather 2 as an example, sort of a vehicle mm-hmm. to show somebody like, look, this is not just an accident. This is the most calculated, you know, yeah. uh, uh, dance with light that you, you can probably imagine, which in the modern filmmakers, like, you know, like, don't even talk to me with the, you know, the monitors and the, you know, the, all the stuff that happens now, like, it's just, it's just so much easier than what they had. Um, yeah. then. You actually had to have, not, not to diss anyone new, but you had to have a level of talent to be like, I know we got this or look at it and be like, I know exactly what we need to do next time to get it right. As opposed yeah. to being like, well, I can fix this on the spot, which is, that's just, that's also cool to be able to fix it on the spot but it just adds that you know man like i wish i had an ounce of <laughs> Gordon yeah yeah talent, right <laughs> yeah like he says he he sort of this is shotgun uh directing or no he calls it he calls it yeah i think it's shotgun directing uh no dump truck directing and shotgun mm, shooting okay. he, he means basically directors who who will take a shot of everything just to be able to put it together and edit in any number of ways to figure it out. He's totally against that, right? He's like, I need to know, you You need to know what you're doing in advance and it will get that. Which means that none of those films that we talked about, there weren't like, it wasn't like a C camera taking a whole different shot of that Godfather 2 scene, right? Like it was only the main camera that was covering it or, you know, yeah. not that many. So it wasn't like there was a backup. 
like this was the idea. So if you messed up the lighting on the one and it was too dark, then mm-hmm. like you'd have to go back and shoot it again. But so I don't know how many times that happened on The Godfather 2. But I think that that one carries so that's like I think my favorite of his sort of magnum opus. That's a, that's his magnum opus, I think. I yeah, so that I've been giving the same overall the the episodes, but I've been giving The Godfather because I think you gotta watch that for various reasons, but like that perfectly is like a snapshot of what he's able to do in color. And then for black and white, you can watch them like a Manhattan to see what he's able to do there. Um because they're very different. But yeah. also you should just watch those movies too. Yeah. We recommend those. The second question is the double bill. So this is more relating to Zelig, but you can relate it to cinematography as well. But if you're creating a double bill with Zelig, what film would you pair with and what's the thematic reasoning behind the pairing? Yeah. Automatically I think of Land Without Bread and mm-hmm. and this one. Because like you could pick something like, I don't know. You couldn't pick anything serious. You couldn't pick a real documentary that's something like like mm-hmm. Night, Night in Fog that's like a real deal, most important, one of the most important films ever. And the way it's done is so like sophisticated. But you couldn't mm-hmm. like even though that there is sophistication in Zelig, just thematically it sort of drops the ball. So it wouldn't be a really good twofer, you know. So I would think I would think something like Land Without Bread if you wanted to go down the mockumentary route. But if you want to do a Gordon Willis to show his range, it'd be cool to show that. Uh, like you know Zelig and then follow it up with I don't know all the president's men or something you're like this guy mm-hmm. did both of these you know or or pick something that's super contrasty right where uh, you see him you know there's a color aspect that he's a master of and also this black mm-hmm. and white archival thing that nobody was doing you know until later with digital technology so he's got such a so he seems like such a control like he has he's a master of his craft Right. In the way that mm-hmm. some people are like, wow, they just winged that and they caught it on film. His was more like I planned this whole thing to happen exactly this way, you know, which is great. You know, not many yeah. people can say that. Yeah. The the Bunuel film, I'm going to add the time of this because I haven't seen it yet. And I've been trying to go through most of his filmography. Like I've seen all the greatest hit and so on. But like the earlier stuff I haven't gotten around to. So that sounds interesting. Definitely going to yeah. try and find that. A copy yeah, of that one, so definitely check it out and check out the the animated sort of behind the yeah. scenes of it. It was weird. It's like a graphic novel that turned into animate. Like it's um, oh, wow. okay. one is on YouTube for sure because it has no rights to speak okay. of. I think Land Without Bread is the easiest to find, and uh, and the other one's like a canopy kind of pick. And Luis, I mean, okay. Luis Buñuel, he's so amazing because his career spent so much, and he got better in with age. Yeah, right where. You know, not everybody does. And I think his last movies were so overwhelmingly, like, fantastic, mm-hmm. you know. And so he's definitely one to, like, uh, as far as I know, he kicks ass. Like, he might have had poor ethics in the 1930s, but, like, all in, like, I think he was, he's one of my faves, for sure. I, I've liked basically everything I've watched. So I, I would be interested to go back and watch earlier stuff like that. So those are both great recommendations. And I agree, you can't really go with anything serious with this film. So the two that I brought up are very much not serious. One of them is maybe a little bit more, but it's still a comedy. The first one is very unserious. And I, I recently watched it for the first time. And it's um, Dead Men Don't Wear a Plaid. Oh, you know, I've never seen it. Yeah, yeah. It had been on my list for so long, and I recently watched it. And it's it's exactly Zelig. You know, they yeah. were 100% inspired by Zelig. And they're taking all the 1930s, 40s noir films, and they're inserting Steve Martin in it. And it's done actually quite well, too. But it definitely takes you out a bit more because you're dealing with stars. And you're like, oh, I know that movie. I know that movie. And that's the point. Whereas Zelig yeah. is like, these are historical things that... You know, you're not everyone's seen those scenes. That would be a fun, funny double bill. And then another one was one, another Gordon Willis and Alan one that they kind of within the film itself, the story they're mixing of two different mediums. And that was Purple Rose of Cairo. In that film, it's done within the story as opposed to it being the whole story. I thought that would just be interesting to see another Gordon Willis um, in color. And it's a period piece. But then there's also the mixing of the actors in a film coming out it's an interesting film that i think that it's another one where i think it was their very last film that they did together 
And I think it really bookends, you know, their work. And some might say one of Alan's last best films. They did a lot of great ones after, but it's up for debate for a lot of people. I think that would be too lighthearted. no but totally appropriate yeah like super good like in the way that the double bill is a conversation between two totally Mm -hmm. separate works of art like this is those two are are perfect examples right you get you get more out of both by watching them together than you don't like knowing that the same two principal sort of people worked on purple Mm -hmm. rosicaro and zelic like this is interesting and they weren't that far away in years right it was only what like five years or something apart yeah i think it was max i think it was like 88 i think it's purple rose of cairo and this is 83 so it oh it's actually 85 so it's only a couple of years wild wow yeah but what an output. they seem like completely different times yeah in, you know cinema but yeah those would be my recommendations and that was selig yeah. you know i i really appreciate appreciate you coming on and talking about this film because i think it takes a lot of confidence to come on talk about a woody allen film directed film as like an adult <laughs> you know takes a lot of maturity and a lot of confidence to bring it forth because i think it's an important film and it's an important film to look at through the lens of gordon willis so i appreciate you bringing it forth for this month no thank you i i was gonna say the same thing to you it's super brave because it isn't i think for those of us who've seen and sort of growing up on the woody allen movies as like yeah cinephiles uh, cineasts mm-hmm. or whatever like we know exactly what he means to us, like sort of from that yeah. side, from like a discovery of the art form side. Like we know mm-hmm. how big a deal he is. So like for those of us who have stopped watching his films, like we it's it's almost more than somebody who's never into Woody Allen and like sort yeah. of canceling Woody Allen. Like when I cancel Woody Allen, like it's it's I do it knowing that like I'm not watching a bunch of movies that I'd be watching regularly, you know? And yeah. It's tough. And I'm, people have this with musicians that they like and mm-hmm. other other sort of filmmakers and stuff. But that that's definitely one of the ones that, you know, like there was a time when I would be like, oh, we should watch this Woody Allen. I'm like, you never hear me say that now. You know, like it just won't happen. Yeah. Right? And and that's, you know, that's the deal. So but I do think it's brave. I don't think that these things just never existed suddenly. Right. Like they are here. And if we aren't the ones who are going to sort of explain it to uh, perhaps somebody who's never seen it, then 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 they're never going to hear sort of the nuanced, I don't know, explanations or context that 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 we can provide, you know, as people who like know the filmography really well, but also mm-hmm. don't agree with like how things have gone down. Right. So anyway, no, I and I really appreciate that sort of Gordon Willis focus. Uh, it yeah. wasn't until I looked at all this work together that I realized, wow, this one person may have been behind the images that I think of, like if I close my eyes, like one of your favorite you know images in cinema it's like oh it was him Mm -hmm. and this is why now i sort of see it you know it's cool cool i love this series that you do i think it's thank you well i hope you come back again because you're always very insightful so sure we'll find another great film oh my god just say when but uh yeah i i can't wait to hear the rest of the episode thank you so much for having me on seeing faces and movies is an official podcast of the royal film club it's hosted and edited by felicia maroney with intro music by the Walker. If you like what you heard, let us know at seeingfacesandmovies.com or send us an email at seeingfacesandmovies at gmail.com. And while you're at it, please subscribe and rate the show wherever you listen to your podcasts. And thanks for joining us for our Gordon Willis run. Hey, hey, my oh my, throw your best gal down right on the floor, she'll be fair.